Good morning. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I hope that everybody had a great Thanksgiving, a great uh, start to their holiday, uh, and it just got better because we get to study Revelation. And uh, it's always an exciting time for me, and uh, I hope you're enjoying these studies as much as I am preparing them. Uh, but today we're going to talk about Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Um, I, it's probably true that you have had the privilege of doing something that nobody else had to do or got to do. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad used to, uh, he was the director of church camp for the 12 and 13 year old uh, group that week. And uh, me being the son of the director, I got to do some things that nobody else got to do. Uh, I didn't have to stay in the cabin where there was no AC. I got to stay in the director's cabin where the air conditioner uh, was and got to stay cool during the day whenever I wanted to. But that's not the opportunity I want to talk about. Every morning, my dad, about 7 o'clock, would go to the loudspeaker. He would grab the microphone and he would tell everybody to wake up all throughout the camp because it was time for them to get up, to come to the flagpole, have the flag raising, have the prayer, and get ready to eat breakfast at 8 o'clock that morning. Well, my dad asked me one day before, he said, do you want to wake everybody up in the morning? I said, oh boy, do I. So I got up, I went with my dad to the loudspeaker, he turned it on, he handed me the microphone, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I said as loud as I could on that loudspeaker, Rise and shine, all you little sugar boogers. <laughs> Don't ask me why I chose to use those words, but I did. I got to do something that nobody else has ever been able to do or a, until that point. When we read about things in the Bible, we read a lot of different things that we would love to be part of. And we would say, man, I wish I could have been there. Don't you wish you could have been in the garden when Adam and Eve were being tempted by the serpent to eat of that fruit? Knowing then what you know now, don't you wish you could have been there and said, don't do it. You don't understand the implications of your actions and what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to everybody else. Don't eat the fruit. Don't you wish you could have been there to say that to them? Or maybe you would have liked to have been a bird in a tree in Genesis chapter 3 when Moses sees the burning bush, but it's not burning up. And the voice comes from the bush and says, Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a bird in a tree to see Moses throw down that staff and it turn into a snake? Wouldn't it have been great to be there? What about the day of Pentecost? Hearing those 3,000 people, or being one of those 3,000 people, being baptized for the remission of your sins on that day. Being able to hear the apostles speak in a language that's yours, that you know they've never studied before. What a day that would have been. But there are other times in Scripture where we read about these heavenly scenes that people have the privilege of being a part of. And wouldn't you have loved to have been there too? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, Isaiah sees the glory of God in an image when he's commissioned to be one of the prophets of Israel. And he doesn't think that he's worthy of this. And he's definitely not worthy, never will be worthy. But regardless of his unworthiness, 
This seraphim comes and brings this coal from the altar and touches his mouth, cleanses his lips, and sends him out on that commission that God gives him to teach to the people of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 22, we read about a heavenly court scene where uh, this, these lying prophets are sent to Ahab to be a thorn to him because he's already made up his mind that he's not going to listen to what the prophets of God have to say. He's only going to listen to things that are prophesied, supposedly prophesied in his favor. And so God kind of made it a little thorn in his side, for those prophets. Job chapter 1, where Satan is given permission to tempt Job. Another one of those heavenly scenes. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul tells the Corinthians about the opportunity he had to be caught up to what he calls the third heaven and saw things that he was not given the permission to talk about. Wouldn't you have loved to been there and to seen those things and be a part of it. There are so many things in Scripture where we would like to say, man, I wish I could have been there. The scene that we find in Revelation 4 and 5 is one of those scenes. But you know what's beautiful about Revelation 4 and 5? It's not just the fact that John was given the opportunity to see this, but it's that John was given the opportunity to see it, yes, but he was also told to write it down. And so you and I can read about this scene, we can see what John saw, and we can experience it for ourselves in a certain way because John wrote it down. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. There's this door standing open, this opened door, some translations will say. John is being invited to see something that nobody else is going to be able to see, except for those of us that are able to read Scripture. And so this image that we're given is something, yes, we would have loved to have been there. We'd have loved to experience it. But through John's writing and his testimony, we are able to experience it for ourselves. But what is it about Revelation 4 and 5 that's important for us to understand? Well, let's talk about some few thing, a few things that are introductory material, I would say, for Revelation 4 and 5 before we really start to, to point out some of the specifics that we find. Here's the first thing. Revelation 4 and 5 points back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. But it also points back to Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 14. In Daniel chapter 4, or excuse me, uh, in a Revelation chapter 4, you're going to find that you've got this image of a throne. This picture of the, the glory of God described in many different ways. You find these four living creatures. And if you haven't read my bulletin article yet, I encourage you to do that because it's all about these four living creatures. I don't have time to talk about everything, but the bulletin article is just another way that I get to talk about something. And so I chose to write the bulletin article on the four living creatures. But we find all of those things in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10. In chapter 5, a great thing to, to, to read about to understand that is the image that we see in Daniel chapter 7, where you've got the Ancient of Days, which is God Himself taking His seat up on the throne. And then the, uh, the, the one 
that comes to Him, which is Jesus Christ, comes and receives this glory and this honor and this dominion that's unprecedented, that will never be taken away from Him, that will last forever. And that's very much like what we find in Revelation chapter 5. And so if we want an Old Testament image, remember I said a couple weeks ago, Revelation is pointed to at least 400 times in this book. If I want to understand it, I've got to use the Old Testament to do so. Well, these chapters are very important for us to study and learn about with these two chapters specifically. But what's the focal point of Revelation chapters 4 and 5? Well, the whole point of these two chapters is the ruling authority and power of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. That's the focal point of this whole chapter. They have the ruling authority to judge Satan and to judge anybody that stands in the path of God's people to try to hurt them or try to stop them in any way. And Revelation has a first century outlook, which is the Roman Empire. And so in many ways, chapters 4 and 5 most points to the destruction of the empire. It seems like they are the ones that are in control. It seems like the emperor rules the day. It seems like he is the one that has all of the authority and the power. But at the end of the day, it's God that has the authority and the power. The Roman Empire... And the Roman emperor does not last. But it also points to the ruling authority of Satan himself. When we look at our world today, it seems like Satan is in control. It seems like he has all the authority and all of the power. But at the end of the day, it's not Satan. It's God our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's see in this book where we find this coming up or popping up all over the place. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. In verse 4 it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is seated, uh, from him, excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Who has ultimate glory and ultimate ultimate dominion? Who is the kings of the ruler, or the ruler of the kings of the earth? It's not the Roman emperor. It's not Domitian. It's not Vespasian or some other Roman emperor. It's God Himself. It's Jesus Christ, our Savior, that has that ultimate authority. And because He is our Savior. Guess what we are able to have too? When we come to chapters 2 and 3, we're going to find something that's said to every single one of these seven churches of Asia. In verse 7 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
Verse 17 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Verse 26 of chapter 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Verse 5 of chapter 3. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And church at Philadelphia in chapter 3 and verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And then last but not least, verse 21 of chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. We are able to conquer as God's people because our Savior, the King of kings, the one who has ultimate authority and ultimate control and ultimate power, is the true King. He has conquered. And so there are a couple of things about these two chapters that I think is important for us to understand. The first thing is this, that Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 point to these, this heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5. It is no coincidence that Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 21 that when you conquer, you sit with me on my throne. That idea of throne, that image of throne is pointing to these two chapters and the throne room of God with the one who is seated on that throne. Everything in chapters 1, 2, and 3 point to chapters 4 and 5. And guess what? Everything in chapters 6 through 22 point back to chapters 4 and 5. This is the center of this book. Why is this the center of the book? Because God's people are victorious. We are victorious because God is victorious. Those who overcome get to come over. Because we conquer evil and death through our Savior Jesus Christ. And in chapters 4 and 5 we see that image vividly. And that's why praise and honor and glory are said of these two in this chapter. In verse 11 of chapter 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I find it interesting that in chapter 5 and verse 12, notice what's said of the Lamb and worship to Him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse 13, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. They are worshipped for the exact same things. They are able to be honored for who they are and the victory and the comfort that they provide to their people, regardless of the troubles that come their way. It's true for those in the first century. It's still true for those of us today who are 
their children. So, worship, glory, honor, everything is due these people because of the victory that they provide for us. But how is that shown in this book? How is their ruling authority, we might say, and their judging authority over evil? How are those things given in these two chapters? Well, let's spend the remainder of our time talking about those two things. What about the one seated on the throne? Well, he's a glorious and he's a precious God. In chapter 4, it says in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then in verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I think we should look at both of these two stones as being the, sa- the image, two images of the exact same thing. And that's the glory and the honor of God. In chapter 21 and verse 11 of Revelation, we find an image of the New Jerusalem, which is the church. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But you've got this New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with the glory of a jasper stone. And so we've got in the book of Revelation itself pointing to glory being something that's depicted by a jasper. And so the precious glory of God is what's being described here. As we move on, we learn that we serve a God of covenantal mercy. It goes on to say that around the throne in verse 3 was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Rainbow reminds us of Genesis chapter 9 in the flood. After the flood waters subsided and Noah and his family and all the animals were released from the ark, God put this rainbow in the sky. It was a promise that He was never going to destroy the earth with a flood ever again. It was the covenant that He made with all mankind, not just His church or His people, but every single individual gets to learn about the covenant mercy of God in this way. It's also depicted through a green emerald. I don't know if, that's, if this is what this is talking about or not, but I find it interesting, the passage that was just read for us, Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. This is an image that's given in the midst of a chapter that talks about the sin of Judah. Their sin, even though they have been a sinful nation, notice what is said about them. They're still going to be like a tree planted by waters, that its root goes out to the waters. And even in the midst of a scorching heat, and scorching heat, guess what? Their leaves are still as green as they can be. An emerald is a green stone. And so green is the color that represents the covenant mercy of God. And I'm kind of reminded of that when I read Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. We move on and we learn that there's a powerful God that's depicted through this judging authority. Around the throne in verse 4, you've got 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. That image may remind you of Exodus chapter 16 where the people of Israel come to the foot of Mount Sinai and when God gives them the Ten Commandments that Moses writes down, there's this loud boom of thunder, there's this smoke, there's this lightning, there's this power that's depicted to the point that in chapter 20 verses 18 through 21, the people of Israel tell Moses, hey, next time God wants to say something to us, why don't you just get the message from Him and tell it yourself? 
Don't have Him speak to us. We don't want to see this power anymore. We serve a powerful God. We also serve a God of holiness and peace. This is the last thing we'll look at, even though we could look at so much more. But in verse 6, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In chapter 21 and verse 1, I want us to notice something that's special. In chapter 21 and verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I can't say with 100% certainty what this sea is. Some people think that it's the sea that the beast rises up out of in chapter 13. And that sea is gone, which means the authority of the nations is gone. I don't know, but I don't think so. I think what this sea is, is it's just describing the separation of John from the throne. John is not able to approach the throne yet. But in chapter 21, the whole idea is that the dwelling place of God is with man after this judgment has been taken place. And so the sea has been removed. Now we can approach God as His people because heaven has been given to us. Maybe that's what's being described here. But it's a sea of glass like crystal. Now understand that this is not talking about clarity. Because glass or mirrors and things were not very clear in the ancient world. Not the way that we have them today. The glass is being described by this smoothness that was that glass had. And so it's a God of peace, but we are still separated from Him. Because there's so much that still has to take place, that still has to go on in order for us to be able to approach Him His throne in all eternity. So the lesson that we gain from this is the fact that we serve a God who is so unapproachable, yet so approachable at the same time. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, the Bible says that we have a God that dwells in unapproachable light. But when the sea is taken away, we have the opportunity to come to His throne and dwell with Him. Spiritually, we have the opportunity to do so today through His church. But in heaven, it's so much different. So many times, we find this in Ezekiel chapter 1. John does it in in Revelation chapter 1 as we've already seen. He sees this image of God. The glory of God drops both of them to their knees and they can't even look because of the glory that that is in front of them. Maybe you've been waking up in the morning and it's a little bit darker in the morning than it has been recently after the time change. You turn on the light and you've been in the dark all night and you kind of do like this as soon as you turn the light on because you can't look at it. You've got to let your eyes adjust. It's kind of what I think about when I think of Ezekiel and John as they see the glory of God because they can't dwell in an unapproachable lot. But we have been given the privilege to do so anyway by being His children and by being a God that gives us ultimate victory. But in chapter 5, we find the scroll and the lamb. 
That's what's important about this. What's important about the scroll? Well, the first thing that we notice is that it's in God's right hand. In other words, this is a powerful message. By the way, the scroll has written all over it a message of judgment. That's what the scroll is about. Next week, we're going to look at chapters 6, 7, and the first five verses of chapter 8 as these seven seals are, 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 are taken away and the scroll's image or the scroll's message is being revealed. It's about judgment is what it is. But it's in God's right hand, the hand of authority and power. This is a powerful message that the one seated on the throne has in his hand. So we move on, we learn that the scroll is written on the front and on the back. When I was a kid, I always wondered why other kids did not write on the back page of their notebook. Did you ever have the spiral notebooks? I don't know how much they use those nowadays, but that's what we used when I was in elementary school. And I couldn't stand to leave the back page blank. Some kids would, would flip it over and then they'd start writing on the front page and sometimes it would hurt my hand, setting my hand on that metal spiral to write on the back page, but I couldn't stand to leave it blank. It had to be written on the front and the back or I couldn't stand it. This message is written on the front and the back, meaning that this judgment, there's nothing left undone. Everything that needs to be judged is judged and it's taken care of. It's sealed with seven seals, meaning that it's sealed perfectly. The number seven is the number of perfection and revelation. And so it's sealed perfectly. It's not easily opened, but it needs to be opened. There's nobody worthy to open it, though, except the Lamb and the Lion, Jesus Christ. Notice John's reaction to this. Verse 2, we're in chapter 5. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly or to weep much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But then in verse 5, everything changes. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lesson we learned earlier about Jesus, or about God, excuse me, the one seated on the throne, we serve a God that's so unapproachable, yet so approachable at the same time. Well, guess what? We serve a Savior that is so powerful, yet so gentle at the same time. Nobody's worthy to open these, this scroll, to unlock the seven seals. Nobody can do it. So John begins to weep profusely because nobody is able to do it. But all of a sudden... The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's conquered. And so he can open the seal, uh, the seven seals of this image. Reveal its contents. Give the judgment to the people. And give them victory. 
But in verse 6, we don't see a lion. We see a lamb. A bleeding lamb at that. See, to the world, to Satan, and to evil, our Savior, our Lord, our Christ, is a lion. Because He can't stand for sin. He judges sin. He hates sin. He conquers sin. But to His people, He's the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Why can God's people look to the future as terrible as things are going to get and still have a smile on their face because their Savior has conquered and the one seated on the throne is the one that is inviting them to come and live with Him for eternity. So as we close this morning, I want us to reiterate the fact that everything in this book looks forward to and points back to these two chapters. Because everything happens from these two chapters. And so while it may confuse us at times, the things that we read about, the things that we try to understand, and there are several ways to understand several different things, at the end of the day, chapters 4 and 5 remind us of what the main message is all about. It's about the glory of God. It's about how He uses His people to accomplish His will. It's about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world providing victory to His people. And it's about the judgment of Satan and the enemies of God and His people. All of those things that we read about everywhere in the book of the Bible, uh, uh, we read about in the Bible as a whole, are found right here in these two chapters and point to everything else we read about. And so let's understand that the book of Revelation is a message of hope to God's people, but a message of destruction to His enemies. I don't have anything to worry about because the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered and He is my sacrificial lamb. It may be that you're here this morning and there's something in your life that's not right. Something needs to change. You have the opportunity to change that right now. It is not necessary for you to come forward and ask for prayers of the congregation, but it can be very beneficial to have a lot of people praying for you at the exact same time. If you need to come forward and repent of sins or get your life back on track, take the opportunity to do that now. It may be that you're here today and you're not a child of God and you feel like you are under the authority of a lion rather than a lamb. And you need Jesus to be your Savior. Look no further than this moment right now. Let us help you in whatever issue you have as we stand and sing.